Hello, and welcome to Stasis Pod, the Beast Wars podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Jen. I'm Alex. I'm David. <laughs> Are you? Are you really? Yeah. And joining us, our special guest, Ben Yi. Hey, everybody. Yay! Yay. Hola, crew. <laughs> Happy to be on. Thank you it for is... inviting me. Yeah, no problem. It is, it is our... the Transformers fan consultant for Beast Wars. Yeah, so uh, why don't we start off? Uh, uh, ben, if you'd like to just introduce yourself, uh, just you know, tell us about yourself, what you're working on, previous accomplishments. Sure. Uh, my name is Benson Yi, and I am the owner-operator of Ben's World of Transformers. It is one of the longest-running Transformers websites. Uh, not the longest, though. I give that credit to others, but I'm in the top five. Um, I've been running this website since 1997, and I have since, of course, expanded my presence out to social media. Uh, you can find the website at bwtf.com, and my claim to fame is basically just being a big geek and loving Transformers. It's my favorite. Favorite, favorite, favorite sci-fi property. Um, I enjoy all its aspects. Comic books, uh, kids' books, cartoons, live-action movies even. <gasps> I know, but it's true. <laughs> it's okay. I like them too. Um, Don't tell the others. <laughs> to be our secret. Um, but it is it is a line that is very near and dear to my heart. It, it is something I grew up with. It was a part of my childhood, a part of my formative years, uh, a part a significant part of my adulthood, and uh, it's something that uh, I take very seriously, but also try to have fun with at the same time. Which sounds contradictory, but is absolutely doable if you're a mature <laughs> adult. So <laughs> um, that's who I am, um, and I want to thank this crew for having me on. I do appreciate the invite. Oh, thanks for being here. So uh, I guess so. Uh, you know, we we've now finished uh, Beast Wars. We've watched all 52 episodes. Uh, we've also watched a couple episodes of Beast Wars 2. Although we kind of wish we could take that back. Yeah. What? Really... <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Drinking watched... robots, crying in shuttles, and all the politically incorrect characters. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh... What couldn't you love about that? And a rabbit. Yes, <laughs> we didn't get the rabbit in our Deppy. episode. No, no, yeah, we're, we're surprisingly no. I'm, so, I'm, I'm Neo on the No, internet. that's Neo. I'm joking. Uh, no, really, um, Neo was more fun, I think, and better animated. Uh, Beast Wars the second was just chock full of weirdness and uh, and sibling rivalry. Uh, maybe, so maybe we should <laughs> yeah, we try Neo that. sometime. But uh, I, we couldn't actually find the first episode of Neo to watch. Believe it or not, you could jump over second and go straight to Neo, and you'd be okay. <laughs> Neo is better animated. I think it actually has a more solid story. Uh, it also is a lot less offensive in many ways than the second is. Um, it doesn't uh, have a mariachi band combiner. It does have a mariachi band, but you know, there's nothing. Living uh, near a city where I see mariachi bands come through the subway, I gotta say they didn't exactly get it wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. At least they tried. So they do traditionally consist of a uh, a cicada, and a lobster, a lobster a, yes. and a uh, and a beetle. Yes, and colorfully so. No, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I'd say the the Tripedicus group in, in in that cartoon is probably the worst thing about it. Um, but man, uh, stuff like uh, Big Convoy and Unicron's uh, Fusor group, and you know those guys that that's some great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The Fusors were all agents of Unicron in that series. Right, the Blendrons. They're creepy, yes. And uh, we'd have to figure out how to pronounce all of their names, though. You could do, like, a five-minute segment on your show where each of you just takes a shot at the name. <laughs> and then yeah. you'd have to bring on someone who actually speaks Japanese to tell you what it actually is at the very end. Oh. Uh, problem, I speak some Japanese. Okay, okay well, so you'd win. You'll be the judge, then. You'd be the judge, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure one of them is named Roto-Rooter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, it's I've I've heard it's rarda, and I've yeah, it's uh, it, it's not meant to be in English. I, I heard it said once um, many years ago at BotCon by a Japanese speaker, and it sounded like he was in pain. <laughs> <laughs> According to the wiki, it's Ratorata, or alternatively, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I prefer Nancy. It's easy. It rolls off the tongue better. Yes. Mm. All right, so... Uh... So, Ben, since you were one of the formative members of the Beast Wars online community, uh, why don't you tell us about uh, how you came to set up uh, BWTF.com? All right, cool. So uh, back in – way back in 96, uh, Transformers wasn't exactly in the best state. Uh, Generation 2 wasn't a spectacular failure, but it didn't meet the expectations that Hasbro had set for Transformers based on its highs in the 80s. So obviously they needed to go a new direction, and they went bold. And under the Kenner imprint, they put out Beast Wars, which nobody was ready for. Um, I remember being on the old Usenet news group, Alt Toys Transformers, and seeing a post, I can't remember by who at this point, but someone had spoken to someone at Hasbro customer service, and they had kind of leaked the info about Beast Wars, and there were no more Autobots, there were no more Decepticons, it was Maximals and Predacons, and they were all animals. Fans had no idea what to make of this, and most of us were fairly young at the time, and we weren't as mature as we all are now. So, you know, I, I would say even my personal reaction to it was very negative at first. I thought, what, you know, what have they done to this thing that I've loved all these years? But there, you know, the, there was also this little kernel of hope inside of me, at least, where I was thinking, well, that means they haven't given up on it. That means they, they want to keep it going in some way, shape, or form. So I waited, and I think a couple months after that post uh, on ATT leaked, uh, I, I go to, um, I still remember the name of the place. It was a pharmacy, of all places, near my job, uh, called McKay's Pharmacy. I don't even know if the chain's around anymore, but they had a toy section. And I went to their toy section, and they had... Wave one of uh, the deluxes, the basics, and the uh, Optimus and, and Megatron Croc Bat two pack. So really, I mean, basically the entire line, you know, that that launched Beast Wars. So I said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Now you would nowadays our automatic reaction would be to just buy everything, but <laughs> back then, being more budget-minded and being very cautious, I only picked up Dinobot and Waspinator. I said, I'll get one good guy, I'll get one bad guy. Um, back then, they were still printing tech specs in the back, and what I did was I actually sat there and read their tech specs and picked the characters based on that, not so much on their designs. And I liked that Waspinator's tech specs seemed to regard him in you know, this weird way, and he sounded kind of dangerous and creepy. And I liked Dinobot, you know, uh, the, the way his tech spec rang. It kind of reminded me of actual Dinobots from G1. So I said, all right, I get to work. I take them out of the package. And, you know, again, young and stupid back then, so I just ripped the bubbles off, threw the packaging away. Again, young and stupid. So, <laughs> um and I'm sitting at my desk, and, and my job back then was to answer phones. So I, I sat there waiting for phone calls. And I'm messing with these things, and they were so different than anything else I had ever experienced. You know, the transformation schemes were very unique for the time. Their, the sculpting on them was well above anything we had seen from organic or techno-organic. I mean, I'd say the closest we got to that level of sculpting was maybe the Pretenders back in the day. Mm. But that was it. But then they had all this articulation, which... Yes, we had seen with cyber jets, but not really applied on the scale. So I said, oh, these things are great. So like that day on my way home, I went and bought more. So I bought the, the bat croc two pack. I bought, uh, tarantulas, uh, you know, I, whatever else I could get my hands on rat trap. And, and I get home and I'm taking all these things out and I'm just like, blown and mind blown because you got to remember we had no cartoon yet the toys came out first and all i had it for context was this little comic book that came with the two-pack and i'm thinking 
So this is my Optimus, this is my Megatron, and they just decided to take on new forms. And and by this point, I had gotten so used to segmenting Transformers fiction into different universes, you know, comic book, find your fate books, cartoon, Japanese cartoon, that to me it was not hard at all just to segment it into its own universe. So this is its own universe, and somehow here Optimus Prime becomes Optimus Primal. And I put them on my shelf, and I was messing with them, and I said, you know what? I can deal with this. Now, at the time, we didn't know that a cartoon was coming. Um, but not too long after I got the toys, I read, oh, there's going to be a cartoon. And even better, um, again, found this out on ATT, that before the regular season was going to air, in April of that year, they were going to put out the, basically the pilot episodes, uh, just to kind of whet everyone's appetite. So there I am, I'm there, VCR at the ready, <laughs> you know, ready to hit the record button. But you see the technique back then was you did hit record because you had to hold down record and play to record. And that took too long for the tape to spin up. So you did that first ahead of the show airing. Then you hit pause. <laughs> then you hit pause again. And it just went, okay, so that's what we had to do back in the day. Everybody. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I, I, uh, I had to do that with the G1 on Sci-Fi Channel. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so we're all familiar with that. Yes. And this cartoon airs, and I'll go into it in detail if you guys want, but I just sat there, mind explode, mind explode, explode, explode. <laughs> I'm just thinking, this is incredible. This is an amazing narrative. I'm sucked in right away. I care about every character right away. And as soon as, you know, they aired part one one day, part two the next day or whatever. Or, and as soon as part two ended, I said, I need to rewatch that a hundred times <laughs> because that's all we had. There weren't any more episodes airing for a while. And let me tell you, for the next probably two to three weeks, I was just rewinding, playing, rewinding, playing, hopping online. And, you know, then you had the, the little civil wars that began to go on with fans where some fans hated it. Some fans loved it. Um, you guys know where I fell on that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you were really yeah. the most uh, prominent champion of Beast Wars in the fandom in those. I, well, Jen, don't give yourself credit. You backed <laughs> me up plenty of times back in the day. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what it was? It was I felt in my gut, and I don't know what to ascribe this to, that this was it. This was an inflection point for the line where <laughs> – it was going to have a chance at being big again. And history has proven I was correct, but at the time we didn't know that. Um, but as the series started airing and it went along and I began my website, uh, I realized this is something special. There, there, there's a level of writing here that we have not seen before, except maybe in the Marvel comics um, in the 80s. So when I began my website... Uh, it was just a fan thing. It was just this creative expression of how much uh, confidence and love I had for this. But what solidified my support of the show is when I wrote to Alliance, which is one of the companies involved in the production, they forwarded my email to Bob Ford, one of the story editors on the series, and he actually wrote me back one-on-one. -on -one. And we started this dialogue about do the original Transformers still exist? What's the context of this universe? And then he got me in touch with Larry Dottilio, the other story editor on the series, and the three of us began this back-and-forth communication, which basically lasted for three years. And I began to see the flip side of show production where these guys really cared, and they kept coming to me and asking me questions and saying, we want to do this, we want to do this, and all these things they wanted to do wouldn't be done if they didn't care. And seeing how much someone behind the scenes cared was really huge. Because up until then, as a fan, none of us had that access. We just, you know, Hasbro was just this mysterious entity that dropped stuff in our Toys R Us's every now and then. And Marvel just published his comic book. None of us talked to Bob Budiansky. None of us talked to Flint Dilly or, or Buzz Dixon back then. Now we can find him on Facebook. But <laughs> it, it was a completely different world back then. And I think because I saw that back and forth, they were willing to do and use me as a fan consultant, but also using uh, the the screen names of other fans from ATT in episodes to give a shout out to them. That's awesome. 
you know, they didn't have to do that, but they made this effort to do that. And it really showed me that my gut instinct from the beginning, that this was something special, was true. And to this day, I maintain that Beast Wars is the line that saved Transformers as a brand. Um, and, and I think even back then, I sensed that. I sensed that was the case, and that's why I was such a passionate defender. And I, I, I fully concur. I mean, I think that if it hadn't been for Beast Wars, I, I doubt that uh, even the uh, even the Michael Bay movies would have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it might be, you know, we see stuff now that are 80s properties that haven't caught on in the same way. We could be in G.I. Joe's boat right now. Mm-hmm. Poor G.I. Joe. <laughs> I'm not sure Hasbro would have kept trying with the Transformers as long as they had with G.I. Joe, if not for the success of Beast Wars. I mean, Hasbro had, had one really successful period, one okay period, one eh, period, and then, <laughs> like, I'm saying commercially, not creatively. I loved most of G2. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure it wouldn't have gone away and then ended up being something like uh, Gem or Masters of the Universe, where they tried to bring it back in the early 2000s for nostalgia stuff, and even then, I'm not entirely sure that mi- early to mid-2000s nostalgia boom would have happened without kind of the Beast era ending and Transformers going back to 80s-style vehicles and that being a smashing success, too. Yeah. What about Visionaries? Would we be, like, with with Visionaries right now? What, where Hasbro's trying to cram it into a... <laughs> possibly not going to happen cinematic universe. <laughs> yes. Instead I mean, of being like the tent pole of Hasbro's uh, production I mean, you know, company. I, you know, good luck, Hasbro. Keep reaching for that rainbow, but uh, I'm not uh, placing any bets on it. Who do you think they're going to cast as Rom Space Knight? <laughs> oh. I, I would totally go see a Visionaries movie, though, if they go into it totally like serious hardcore fantasy stuff. Right. <laughs> um Ryan Reynolds should obviously be cast as Rom. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He's he's because shown he can play anything. <laughs> yeah, he's shown that he Apparently. can act even like without his face on screen. How about his face replaced by a toaster? <laughs> <laughs> as long as the toaster can emote, that's all that matters. Yes. Uh, I mean seriously I might go for Doug Jones. Ooh yeah. There you go. Doing the live action? Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, he, he was uh, Abe Sapien in yeah. uh, those Hellboy movies. Yeah, I guess he has a good and voice. And he was the voice in the second one. Mm-hmm. And he's a tall guy like Rom. Yeah. He was uh, most of the ghosts, I think, in Crimson Peak, because I like Crimson Peak. I think only about half, but yeah. If you've seen a tall, skinny monster, it's probably Doug Jones. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, if, if, you know, in the unlikely event that this cinematic universe actually happens, then yes, I would go with Doug Jones as Rom Space Knight. <laughs> but yeah, I've I even at the time, you know, in the late 90s, I had a couple friends I can think of and now I have some friends I've met since then that aren't really that into Transformers as a whole, but we're really into Beast Wars and, you know, they're they're still aware of it through Beast Wars. You right. know, they didn't come into it with G1. Uh, they came into it really appreciating Beast Wars. And so I think that it, it did have a, a very significant impact. I think it still sort of stands alone in a lot of ways. It's not homaged quite as much as, as G1 tends to be because, you know, I understand Hasbro goes more, is going more for that you know, 80s appeal, but but I think that, yeah, it, it really did help save the brand. Yeah, and, you know, Beast Wars also did something else to Transformers as a brand that really hadn't been done yet up until that point, which was it completely flipped the script on what a Transformer could be. Uh, it flipped the script on what a Transformer can look like, uh, what a Transformers cartoon can look like, and because it changed everything i mean it, and this is why i give them a lot of credit because i don't think we would see such a fundamental shift now where one they're not vehicles and traditionally they were vehicles i mean plenty of g1 beasts but 
a majority of them were vehicles. Uh, the organic aspect was a huge one. So these guys looked more like sci-fi creatures in many respects than a traditional transformer. Um, and then in context, you know, um, not many series in sci-fi at all, if you think about it, are as bold as they were to jump centuries into the future not really tell you what happened to all the characters that you grew up with and and have seen dozens and hundreds of stories with and just say look just trust us these guys are the descendants of those guys roll with it mm-hmm. and even the toys from from the sculpting to the just their general shapes they they weren't very blocky they were much you know more rounded you know more organic looking more humanoid looking uh in many respects that was a huge shift and what it did was it was almost like pulling a band-aid off in a way you know it it was painful in terms of transition but it helped people understand that transformers could be more than just Blocky robots that turn into cars, trucks, and planes and weapons. Um, now, granted, that's kind of where they swung back later, but probably had a good, I would say, five or six years where Transformers design hovered in that zone. Uh, even when car robots rolled around, um, if you look at the Gigatron design, he's very Beast Wars, even though he's fully mechanical. That's of you know all you'd have to do is tweak the sculpting a little bit and he'd be a techno organic, um, mm. you know. And then of course once once the Unicron trilogy rolled around, then we swung completely back the other way. But I, I think that's a good thing because you need that balance. You it can't all just be always one thing or the other. And uh, and, and it really helped reset fandoms mind frame to understand that this thing I love can be more than it was when I was nine years old. And I, I would also say that uh, fictionally, more series have sort of followed that template of Beast Wars with its fairly limited cast uh, mm-hmm. since then. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that uh, part of what made Transformers animated's version of Optimus Prime such a good character and such a, you know, unique standout as an Optimus Prime character was that he clearly took a lot of cues from Optimus Primal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say that Bumblebee on the uh, Robots in Disguise series that's currently airing also takes some cues from Primal. Yeah. Bumblebee on R.I.D. 2015 is what they tried to do with Cheetor in Beast Machines, but done right, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, so now, do we just sort of want to go down, uh, you know, our favorites and least favorites from uh, Beast Wars? Sure. So, uh, we have any least sorry? favorites? <laughs> I mean, you know, there were some episodes that we all okay. weren't crazy about. I could, I could do without seeing Dark Voyage again. Yeah. Okay. If it's for episodes, yeah, there, there are a couple. Yeah. Not clunkers, but just they were, there were episodes that had been done better. <laughs> Especially like at the first season where we get two of the same story back to back. That was a little odd sometimes. And I would also say that the third season as a whole kind of loses a step from season two. Yeah, but it was still better than a lot of what was on at the time. But yeah. Yeah. I'd say a good season three episode would beat most of the good season one episodes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Had a similar kind of feel of... A lot of these are either introducing characters or are just an episode instead of how nearly half of season two was arc episodes, but... More than half, really. Yeah. And it was a really good arc. Yes. And I would also say that it's it was influential in the sense that you had arc episodes in a way that not a lot of kids' TV shows did at the time. Not a lot of TV shows did at the time. No. Yeah, I mean, at... At that time, you know, Exo Squad did some of that uh, a little before it. I didn't really get to watch the Battletech cartoon much, but yeah, not a lot of shows, uh, you know, action shows. Certainly not comedy shows. But, oh wait, yeah, Exo Squad was before Beast Wars. I thought it was after. I think right around the same time. It was a little before because I, a little before. Yeah. I, I have my my time references. Exo Squad was when I was in high school. And Beast Wars was when I was graduating high school. 
Donkey, yeah. Yeah, Exosquad was earlier in the 90s. Yeah. I, I do know it had a lot of the same voice actors. Yes. Yes, yes it did. I will say that my, my recent attempt to rewatch Exosquad did not go as well as my rewatching of Beast Wars. I'm sorry didn't, to hear uh, that. Didn't quite hold up? I, I think probably... I tried to get my roommate to watch it with me, and he's much younger than me. He's like a, a little brother kind of friend. And uh, he pointed out like three episodes in some huge glaring flaw in the military plan that was central <laughs> to the plot. And I was just like, ah, you ruined it. You ruined the whole thing for me. Yeah, I, I think it's – yeah, I think you need to watch that kind of with a certain f- – mind frame uh it was to me one of the first u.s series that tried to do essentially what robotech did mm-hmm. um and i i rewatched some recently but not in order just like random episodes and as individual episodes they've held up very well i i haven't rewatched a whole arc in years but i i remember being fanatical about that series. Um, the, the one thing I will also say is they had incredible toys. Yes. Um, I still have all of them. I refuse to sell them unless <laughs> like I'm going broke or something. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're the, the, between the action features, how much they look like what was on the show. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, just how great that line was. And I, I'm really sad it didn't do better than it did. Mm. Yeah. And I think that might've been, you know, it, it may be that Beast Wars getting to be such a serious show may have owed a little bit to, to Exosquad going for that slightly older uh, audience. You know, not going as much for the, the seven and eight year old audience as for maybe like the, the 10. I was like 14, 15. So. I think we were, you know, going back to Beast Wars, I think as a, as a society, and we have to look at U.S., you know, as a society back then in entertainment, we were in a very unique spot, which I don't know if we're going to go back to or a version of anytime soon. But, you know, you, you got to look at Bob and, and Larry, who were, you know, working professionals at the time when we were in high school and college, right? Mm-hmm. So their formative, you know, uh, years of entertainment were things that we maybe in college watched in reruns. Yeah. You know, um, so, so when they were kids, they had their Bionic Mans and Star Treks and Looney Tunes and everything. Um, you know, some of those in reruns. And that was what they grew up with. And that's what formed the background of what they would write. And you can see some of that influence, whether it's Star Trek, whether it's Looney Tunes in Beast Wars. And, but the nineties, that era, that particular era, we were beginning to cross over into a different place in society where the complete rampant political incorrectness of the 80s was beginning to die down and and I remember the term politically correct beginning to run rampant in the 90s right <laughs> but it hadn't yet taken over so you could still get away with some of the things that they got away with in Beast Wars some some of the, <laughs> the let's face it there was sexual innuendo plenty of that there oh, yeah. was there was a lot of adult humor and some pretty i mean if, for robots i mean it's fine but imagine if they were organic humans there was some pretty shocking violence in there there you had all the beheadings and the crushings you know that's stuff that i don't even think would fly today on a transformer show even though they are all robots so those both seem very looney tunes yeah. Both yeah. the risque and, jokes going over the heads of the kids and the right. almost comically horrible violence. Exactly. But back then, we were just in this place where the people writing this stuff for us had grown up with that. It was part of their, you know, is part of their life experience and they, and that works its way into their writing. But the, the great part also is that the TV standards let it go. I mean, any adult who read those scripts would see, oh, I see what you did there. But the editor still let it go. Kenner still let it go. Everyone was letting it go. If you took a Beast Wars script today and did a find and replace, you know, with character names and then handed it in for RID, they would burn it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they would say, we would get sued. Parents groups this. Moms groups that. You know, I mean, you make one innuendo on a cartoon now and people collectively lose their minds. But... Mm-hmm. 
in the 90s, we still had Animaniacs and, to a lesser degree, Tiny Toons, you know, shows like that where there was innuendo flying all over the place. Mm -hmm. So we were in this great position where we could still get away with a lot of that. And I think it helped make the show better. But it also lent itself towards a mentality of being an arc-based show with a larger overriding narrative, which, um, you know, at the time uh, in the 90s, you also had Babylon 5 on, which, you know, at first didn't wasn't very successful, but later on in the sci-fi community went on to become praised because it was so arc-based. You didn't see what all the pieces were until X time in the series. And I think by that same token, Beast Wars had a very similar thing going on. And I don't really think we've seen anything quite like that since. Even Beast Machines, Beast Machines was pretty linear, I think, as a narrative compared to Beast Wars. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just kind of like, you know, this thing leads to this thing, which leads to this thing, and then boom, we're done. Um, whereas Beast Wars was like, well, remember that thing four episodes ago, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you thought was over or wasn't consequential? Well, guess what? And we don't really get that much anymore. We do a little bit. R.I.D.'s actually done that a little bit with the Decepticon Island storyline, mm-hmm. and that's why I consider it one of their best storylines. But Beast Wars had it from first episode all the way to last episode. and that That's huge. Yeah. And it's worth noting that Larry Dottilio worked on, uh, he also worked on Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I think it's kind of interesting, just that time period in television in general, you had Babylon 5, you had the later seasons of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you had mm-hmm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer starting up, and part of the reason that you started getting these shows experimenting with kind of long-term serialized content was because... They weren't writing with the assumption that you're writing for one-off episodes that are only ever going to get seen out of order because that was after Cable had kind of just hit it big and there was the assumption that, oh, they can play this in order through the entire run because they need stuff to fill their channel instead of, Mm -hmm. okay, we're never going to actually make it into the holy land of syndication unless we make sure this is all episodic and you can watch one and not need to have watched Mm -hmm. any of the other ones. And I, I think another thing that may have contributed to that is the growing popularity of the internet and the growing realization of these uh, of the show of the show creators that they have a fandom. You know, before you know you'd get letters and stuff like that, but uh, here you could sort of see that you had this whole community that was uh, dedicated to uh, dissecting the minutia of uh, of the show you're creating. Yeah. And I think shows like you know Buffy or the X Files yes. would have you know sort of that same sort of trade off between episodic shows and arc shows, and also speed of that communication. Right, the, you're right. The yes. internet was a huge piece of it because I remember being a Star Trek fan uh, who grew up with the original series on reruns and then Next Gen, and the you only communicated with other fans in a few ways. Maybe you were lucky enough to have some friends who are also fans, right? Local. Yeah. Maybe. Um, <laughs> if you were lucky. You, you could go on um, – you could become part of newsletters, right, where people wrote each other as pen pals. And that's how I started in Transformers fandom. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you, you know, you went to a convention. And I used to go to the creation Star Trek conventions. And one of the great things was here is a place where I can turn to almost anybody – and I can start talking about an episode and they'll know what I'm talking about and they'll have their own opinion. But now, like, well, back then, ATT was the place for chatting about Transformers. Um, back then, that was the place you went. And the writers were there in the group. They used to post in there until they were asked not to. But they were in there watching what we were saying, absorbing that feedback. And I think it showed. I, I really think, sure, they always intended you know, for the Maximals to be the Autobots descendants and all that stuff. But you'll notice as the seasons went along, more and more and more and more of that stuff <laughs> started appearing. <laughs> um, I mean, by the time we got to the agenda, it was just, you know, balls to the walls everywhere with G1 references, right? Yes. I don't know if it would have gotten that extreme if they hadn't seen the excitement online. Though, of course, that was before you had convenient wiki references, so they then had to, you know, get the information from us rather than being able to to look it up themselves. And I think, and I I was going to mention another thing with uh, the serialized storytelling, but which also comes into play here, is that we were starting to see uh, 
home video was a much bigger thing at that point. Uh, even in VHS, there would be big box sets of, uh, and I used to work at a used bookstore, so I saw so many giant box sets of TV series uh, that you could all watch in a row. But of course, at that point, Transformers was out of print, uh, so they couldn't go back and get that reference. They had to rely on those of us who, you know, had those on VHS, uh, you know, had those resources, uh, which nowadays the writers can just go to TF Wiki and look up whatever they need. Man, yeah, so just, you guys will... I'm just oh, remembering sorry, go the, ahead. I'm just remembering those here have a cinder block sized box of cheers season two. <laughs> <laughs> I I still have my season one of Highlander, which oh my god, I, I was so ecstatic when I got that. And the thing is like it takes up half a shelf by itself. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. I only keep it out of nostalgia's sake. I have it on DVD. <laughs> so, <laughs> you just can't let um, go of it. I can't let go of it. It's it's. It, I, I worked. I worked like it, it was like half a week's salary to buy that thing. And I remember how excited I was when I got it by mail order. You know, you called <laughs> in the mail order because I saw the commercial. <laughs> oh man, I remember. But this. anyway, you know what? We were talking about. Um, Favorites, right? Favorites and least favorites. So I'll, mm. I'll start us off on that. And I, I'm sure you'll edit around all this. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't think it's going to come as any surprise to anybody that my favorite episodes, and I'm going to say S because they're all connected, is the Agenda Trilogy. Um, I think that uh, from a high-level standpoint, from a Transformers fandom standpoint, it is one of the few times we have ever seen one generation of Transformers and another generation of Transformers so heavily mushed up and integrated into a story that was critical to the overall story arc of a series. Um, I also am a huge fan of it because I think it was well-written. I think it had political intrigue, humor, action stakes uh and it was also this uh mini series essentially that gave a big salute and nod to the G1 fan community and G1 as a whole um i also will I'll, i will tell a story that goes with this but knowing what went on behind the scenes to get that those episodes done um, I will, I will have nothing but praise for not just the writers, but the production crew, the animators, everybody who went nuts trying to get this all put together. Um, Jen, you were talking about, you know, having stuff on VHS and everything. So, mm-hmm. uh, I get this email from Bob Ford one day and he says, okay, we're going to show the arc. We're going to show Transformers in there. And, you know, I'm sitting there on my keyboard. My brain is exploding, <laughs> right? This was, remember, they hadn't animated it yet. So this is months and months before it was going to air. I couldn't tell anybody. And he's like, the problem is no one here has any VHSs of G1. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? Like, and then I realized, Jen, like you said, it's out of print. Right? Yeah, so. and they they never put the entire series out on VHS. Uh, they, right. There were a handful of season one episodes, and then we had to wait for DVD. Yeah, and think about how long that was. It was yeah. so, forever. So I'm like, okay, you need visual reference. And he's like, yes, I need interiors of the arc. So I'm like going through my episodes, and I gave him – I know I gave him more than meets the eye uh, in a couple other episodes, and I said, this is all the reference you should need. And the animators, I FedEx the tape to him, um, and FedExing back then was a lot more serious than it is now, <laughs> <laughs> as everything was. And I FedExed it to him because he was like, the animators need it like in two days. Ooh. So I basically spent one day putting the tape together, then the FedExed it the same day, and it got to him the following day. And – what you see on screen is the result of that, you know, but the, you know, but knowing that they cared enough that they didn't just say, eh, you know what? I have these vague memories of it being this gold thing with like stalactite sticking out of it. Let's just animate that. You know, they actually said, no, we want some visual reference. We want to be as faithful as possible. And CG models cost money to put together. So the fact that they put together the prime model and a couple of the other models of the other Autobots for the flashback, that's, that's huge. So, that level of caring was above and beyond as far as I'm concerned. And, and But, you know, of course, I'm not going to ignore the elephant in the room. The thing that topped it was when Bob wrote to me after all this was done and he said, okay, we're going to credit you. How do you want to be credited? 
<laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I thought he was joking at first, honestly. I thought it was a gag. And he's like, no, no, we, we want to credit you. So I told him, Benson, he's fine. Call me whatever you want. <laughs> I just <laughs> want to see my name in the credits. And the day that episode aired and I saw my name in those credits, I just, I, I was floored. I, I remember pausing it. I, I called my mom into the room. I was like, "Mom, that's me," because <laughs> you know, she had no idea any of this was happening. Um, and I, then I showed my friends. I called them over the same day, and they checked it out. And you know, it was this huge deal. Um, but I have such fond memories of getting that tape together, FedExing it to them, uh, all the conversations that happened because you know we talked about this and that, and what is the matrix? What is the creation matrix? All these conversations were had months before that episode was produced. Now, the unfortunate thing is they, they did, of course, uh, the animators saw the Matrix in Prime's chest from the movie, and they said, oh, that must be the spark holder. <laughs> <laughs> That's Whoops. reasonable. So, not perfect, but you know what? I think we could forgive them that, given how much they got right. Yes, and, I mean, so much just, of it was perfect. Yeah, and I think just seeing Primal holding... What is basically the Matrix is a great enough image that it's fine that it's not entirely technically correct. Mm-hmm. And if you have Robot Masters, Primal, and Masterpiece Optimus, you could recreate the scene. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Um, now, as for... It, it's hard for me to say least favorite because to some degree... I like all the episodes, um, but I would say the one that I was – i this is how I'm going to qualify. I was least entertained by was probably Go With The Flow, uh, which I get was kind of the season three comedy episode, but I guess it just – the pacing was a little off for me, so I didn't find it particularly funny. I did laugh at certain points, but it wasn't – like I actually thought – you know, uh, some of the gags in the earlier episodes and earlier seasons were much more effective. But, you know, the show was kind of winding down at that point anyhow. So I, in my brain, I just kind of skip over that episode when I think of the series. But that would probably be my least favorite. Yeah. I mean, even the low road, you you uh, you groan, but it's, it's a good kind of groan. And it had a big finish. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it did. It was explosive. Yeah, it, it paid I off. Kind it's of horrible the same way joke. About... Exactly. I feel kind of the same way you do about Go with the Flow, about Dark Voyage, but I also feel like yeah. in the process of a rewatch, Go with the Flow was more entertaining, at least to me, because it was more visually interesting and mm. technically impressive, whereas Dark Voyage was just a run-of-the-mill season one episode instead of, like, if not the best written, then the showcase for how far mainframe entertainment had come with being mm-hmm. able to do computer graphics. Yeah, Dark Voyage, and, you know, I think we discussed this one when we got to it, but it really felt like just a stock 80s cartoon plot. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. could have been from any the other The one where they and, go blind. And, and it was just, that. I think that episode was one that just felt like it wasn't animated as well. Like, there were bits of it that just, like, felt cheaping out, like, some of the backgrounds, like, reused, what was it, the Banyan trees or something in that episode? Yeah, although I, I do kind of like that big snake we get in uh, Dark Voyage. The big snake. Yes. It reminds me of Anaconda. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Aside from that, that's kind of a, I guess that'd be my least favorite episode, which is followed by what became my, my fr- favorite first season episode, Possession. Ah, yeah, oh, that's a good cause, one. Because that was where it's like, oh, this is really Transformers. Because like before that, it was like, okay, it's Transformers, it's a different name, but it was a different thing. With Possession, it's like, oh, this is still the Transformers I loved when I was little. I'm okay, I wasn't that much bigger, but still, it's, it's like, oh, it's still Transformers. It's Starscream. It's tying back to G1. It's like, but being its own thing. It's like I love that. It, although, admittedly, my favorite episode, of course, yes, is Agenda. Oh, all three parts. But possession is fun. Yes. I I found, and this is also kind of related to go with flow, 
as far as characters go, I didn't like Depth Charge as much as I did the first time around. Hmm. Yeah. And I think maybe that was because at the time I was like really into Manta Rays. <laughs> That's right, blame and, the and, animal. <laughs> yeah, and, and at the time I I wasn't quite tired of that kind of archetype. Where I I think I feel like in my my memories he had played more of a part on the show than he ultimately did. Yeah, he he's just he's barely like Tiger he's Hawk. A Deus Ex Manta. Yes, he, he's yeah. he's Bat Manta. He's the Batman to do things, but in a way, like Tiger Hawk, he's an obvious, he's here to sell toy. He doesn't get to do much, but Death Charge is this kind of the same way to sell toy. He's made out to be this awesome Batman, but he doesn't, he just doesn't gel with the dynamic of the other characters that well, combined with the fact that he's missing half the episodes he's even there. Just he's the odd man out in the cast. Yeah, it, yeah. It, you definitely felt towards the end, I believe, the syndrome of um, the writers having to introduce these toys and probably being told, this is the kind of character he needs to be, this is how he should act, go. And that's hard for a writer, you know. Um, I recall, although this is vague, I know, but I recall Hasbro or Kenner, whatever you want to call them at the time, having a few more notes during the season three era for the writers, like a few more directives, they had been a little more hands-off season one and two, I think. Mm. And then in season three, I think they really tried to be more hands-on and say, okay, well, we need this toy in there and we need this and we need this. Whereas I think with season one and two, uh, the writers, maybe not, they probably didn't have the freedom to choose which toys were used, but they could at least say, Okay, this character becomes a transmetal and we can keep using him. You know, it's not like they said, okay, well, now you gotta get rid of tarantulas. You can't use the transmetal tarantulas. Now we need, you know, know, this other character in there instead. Uh, and I think it shows on screen. Um, I, I I never connected with Tigerhawk or Depth Charge in the way I did with any of the other characters. Yes. Well, another problem is like everybody else had been there since pretty much the beginning. These guys came in in the third season. If there had been a fourth well, I mean, season, the season two editions, I think they gelled well. Well, yeah, you know, Silver I, Bolt did really good. The Predacons, yeah, Rampage, very... and I, I like Quick Strike. <laughs> well, yeah, Quick Strike is just a joke. He's an entertaining joke. The the problem was in the season three guys. If there had been a season four, and they'd had a character arc, but they kind of don't. Depth Charge was always at a disadvantage because. It's harder to introduce a brooding loner character into an established ensemble cast than it is to have them there from the start. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And I I do wonder, though, if part of why Hasbro started getting more involved with it was because it was succeeding. Right. Like, first season, they were like, just throw something together. Yeah. And then once it was actually doing well, they were like, well, we need to really manage how this is reflecting on our brand Yada yada, and and yeah, and it's not like Beast Wars really was canceled. It just mutated. Was yeah, it just rolled <laughs> into Beast Machines. It was just mm-hmm. sort of reset into the next toy concept. So it's it's not like it was any less popular. But but yeah, I think that that that's probably part of why Hasbro got a little more hands on with it. I would also. And this is partly speculation on my part, but uh, I would also argue that they were getting more and more into the introduction of bigger and badder toys. So we were starting to get into more and more ultras popping up all over the place that were more complex and had more going on. Tigerhawk clearly was a more ambitious toy than the original Optimus Primal Gorilla toy uh, in many respects. Um, whether it was successful or not, I leave that to everyone to judge for themselves. But um, the the I'll other read thing, read review on your website. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had a, uh, then you had, um, you know, Optimal Optimus, who, you know, I still love that toy. But you know, you got to admit that was that was far above beyond anything they had attempted before then. So yeah. I, I think the oh, yeah. the financial stakes were higher now because they were saying, "Wait, we're putting a lot more money into developing these toys." We want it to pay off. Um, I I would argue, and this goes back to my earlier point, that in the long run, it did. Even yeah, though yeah. I don't think Beast Machines 
was quite as successful as Beast Wars was, it helped bridge the gap into what we have now. Mm. Though, well, it never occurred to me that there there were no deluxes introduced in season three. It was oh, all uh, the bigger toys. Yep, there was one. Yeah, no, no. Uh, well, two. Oh yeah, Cheetor, uh, well, Cheetor. and uh, Dinobot. Yeah. Okay. You meant good two. deluxes. Yeah. <laughs> I think mostly I meant new <laughs> character new character deluxes too. Yeah, I think um, that's what you Because meant. really the new characters who showed up were well, Rampage showed up in season two, but then Depth Charge shows up and those two shipped together mm-hmm. for that was not up on the, the toy shipment uh history. Oh, oh, I thought you were talking about a different kind of ship together. <laughs> well shipping, shipping. there may have there may have been some of that too. Oh, uh, that's why they call them wave mates. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go write that story. And uh but but them and Tigerhawk mm-hmm. and of course Megatron because he was again the wave mate with uh Tigerhawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they they didn't really introduce any new characters in season three who weren't big toys. Yeah. Yeah. Well then. And then if you yeah. notice when they went to Beast Machines Mm-hmm. You notice they went back the other direction. Um, yeah, it was. That, they had some basics. Yep. And, and well, that was sort of the sort of the first time we'd really had toys in multiple scales that were available simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember Which when that was a weird what they thing? do now? <laughs> yeah, that was. Oh, you know, I had to decide. Oh, geez, do, do I do I want to get both jet storms? Yeah, <laughs> and, and now it's like, haha, what do you mean? It's it's like it's like what we were talking about earlier when I was telling you about the uh, Transformers Adventures sculpts and and you know or or if we're talking about Combiner Wars and people are saying well you know one of the big discussions going on right now is are you going to get the Takara version or the Hasbro version and my response to that is always or <laughs> <laughs> five different bumblebees it's yeah. it's literally embarrassing how many versions of like the same bumblebee that i i have from one line you know like r.i.d bumblebee it when i bought the toys r us one that came out late last mm-hmm. year i looked at it and i went this has got to be it like <laughs> I, I can't do this again <laughs> and, and then of course of course takara puts out it's it's retooled version right and, and with the wonderful deco and i'm like oh i guess i am doing that one more time <laughs> yeah i uh, i used to be a a jazz merchandise completist mm-hmm. and the first michael bay movie uh broke me of that habit uh, one might even say it uh, broke you into two pieces yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the movie inducted me into that and broke me of it all in one year. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh my god, there's a movie coming out. I have to buy all of these characters. I need to have them all. No. And then no, it's like... No, you don't. No. Uh, there's too many. There's a fourth ratchet. Why did I buy the first one? <laughs> oh, I did that after but, uh, two. It's like, oh, I got two... St- oh, no, I don't need three. No. But on, on characters getting multiple toys and new models in season three... Uh, I found myself appreciating Black Arachnia a lot more this time around. Oh. Oh, yeah. And I think this is one of those things that comes down to basically me growing as a person. Like, I was just better able to appreciate her as a character when I wasn't seeing her as the sex appeal character. Once I could get past that then she's an amazing character. She's an amazing female character in a boys' action cartoon in the 90s. She would be an impressive female character in a boys' action cartoon now. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. And she had a very complex story arc. Uh, You know, we've, we've talked as we've gotten to those episodes about how, you know, some of the stuff Silverbolt could do would do could be interpreted as kind of creepy but she was always very much the one in power in those situations which made it where it you know wasn't so creepy because you you felt like she could tell him to knock it off if she really wanted to and he would listen Mm -hmm. uh so yeah i 
came away from this viewing just appreciating her character far more than I had before, and it made me happy. She was actually the the first Beast Wars character toy, the first toy that I bought based on the show. So, because she was the first female one. Okay. I mean, so... she was a, a redeco of Tarantulas, but yes. technically she was the first female one. Yeah. I think the first one who was actually designed to be female was uh, Transmetal Air Razor. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was that was the case. I mean, Airazor was a new mold, but I think she only became female when the writers of the show insisted. Yes, that's, and, that and is... And Japan never got that memo. No, they did not. <laughs> no. They were like, so this is a small boy, right? This is a dude, right? It's totally a guy. <laughs> not yeah. sure how they uh, explained that transmetal toy. Yeah. And, then, and, and then when they watched the uh, American version, they're like, wow, that, that sure is a very feminine-sounding guy doing that voice. <laughs> well, to be fair, Pauline Newstone did do Frieza in Dragon Ball Z. I don't think she was doing her uh, her guy voice. In no, I mean, well, I, I recognize the voice. Really... I assumed Frieza was supposed to be a lady. <laughs> I mean, he's kind yeah, of in lady colors. To be fair, she wasn't doing her guy voice for Frieza either. Was, <laughs> I, I assume that was kind of the. I'm not going to say joke so much as gimmick. Let's go with gimmick. Frieza yeah. just kind of doesn't have a gender. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He's a space alien. Maybe he doesn't. That's entirely possible. I think that's a little uh, much for 90s anime, though. You're, well, you're yes. asking a lot. Well, that from 90s them. anime, yeah. It's not Sailor Moon. Yes. Yeah, the, the only dysmorphism you're going to see from uh, Frieza is his insistence that this isn't even his final form. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But yeah, maybe they just thought, well, I mean, maybe they thought that that was supposed to be a child's. I mean, they did make her a young boy, so maybe they thought that was a child voice. (laughs) Or maybe, as we have discussed a lot with the Japanese translation of Beast Wars, they did not care. Oh, I, I think if you guys have seen some of the comics for Transformers that have come out of Japan, they very much do not care. Yeah, yeah. Standards be damned. Uh. Yeah. Well, even just the they it it wasn't a uh, a very loyal translation, and I'm not saying that it didn't. It it may very well have had its own artistic merits, but uh, creator respect for creator intent was not one of them. Yeah, I, I think they were good doing their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten the impression for a long time that as far as uh, to Karatomi's approach for Transformers at mass retail goes, they've always kind of viewed it as skewing younger than Hasbro views it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, back then. Um, now, I think it's a little different. Uh, obviously, you know, things have changed over the decades, but uh, right now, it's probably much more the other way. They probably assume most of the Transformers audience skews older, with some audience for younger, hence why they have adventure floating around out there right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not... That's like adult fan older, not just like 12-year-old instead of 5-year-old. Right, right. I I wonder, honestly, how much of uh, their target audience is Americans. (laughs) I'm sure they do brisk export business. Yes. Well, I mean, and this is something that's interesting contrasting with the Beast Wars era. I remember when when we all went to BotCon or whatever or went online and we saw – the Beast Wars second, uh, Beast Wars two, Galvatron, and yes, I, I had mean, a tiny, tiny grayscale picture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how excited were we, right? And so excited. And Japanese anything was this mysterious thing from far away, and uh, you know, staying on the Beast Wars topic, when when we began to see Japan getting its own Beast Wars toys that we weren't getting, mm-hmm. um, that was. This, it opened up a whole new era in collecting. And I remember at BotCon uh, that year when he came out, oh, I can't remember who had it. It might have been Tony Prado, but uh, it's like $25, I think, a piece. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that seems so low now. God. Wow. I, and now, I mean, yeah, good luck finding him for that now, especially with the gold plastic syndrome. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. 
But and, and I remember, especially when uh, when Neo came out, the fun thing about that was it was all these weird animals. Yes. So you'd have people who were like, well, I really like, you know, horses. Or in, in my case, the one I had to get, like, I went to BotCon that year. I had been going to enough of them that all my, like, back list, mm-hmm. want list was all checked off. Mm-hmm. So I was like, my big goal for BotCon this year is Stampy. Yeah. <laughs> Damn right. Come on. It was a rabbit. You know, you had people who were, like, really into penguins, and they yes. got a penguin toy. And, and that was, uh, I think that was one of the most fun parts, was uh, that Japan would do these really off-the-wall animals. Well, also, like, concepts, right? So, so Long Rack is a giraffe who transforms into a robot with a giant claw arm who also becomes a battle emplacement. Mm-hmm. And then in robot mode, he can hold the rabbit or the penguin in weapon mode. Yeah. Like, if and you walked into oh, a Hasbro stuff. marketing <laughs> room and put that on the table as a proposal, they would laugh at you and they'd go, no, but really, what's your actual proposal? <laughs> and in Japan, they went, let's make it. <laughs> <laughs> we will make this. Let's do this. <laughs> and and Mock Kick had a brushable tail. Yes. He had <laughs> Fine hair. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, we'd be remiss if we did not mention the only Transformer, well, the only toy Transformer with testicles. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. As a working clock. Yeah. It's an alarm clock. With booze. Yes. It's very important. Yeah, so that that was a lot of fun with the, uh, the Japanese market, how they just make totally off-the-wall stuff. And and while I think it it sounds like lunacy now, I mean literally, if people didn't know what we were actually talking about, they would think we were making this all up. Um, yes. But those toys also were a reflection of what Beast Wars began as, right? It was this inversion and complete, you know, change in the concept of what a transformer is and could be. Um, and I think you know, to some degree, we have that nowadays. Although I think nowadays the focus is a lot more on echoing concepts of the past and trying to do them better Mm -hmm. um and i have no problem with that i think this is a part of the cycle that the line has to go through um but in terms of innovation i think we haven't hit that um level um, and I think it's dangerous to do that um, and I don't mean it's a bad thing dangerous I mean it's a risky thing because r- right now nowadays markets aren't very good with change <laughs> you no. know yeah like, they weren't great back then but they were better mm-hmm. but I mean I see all this like I mean I follow a lot of sci-fi stuff and you change anything in any show any franchise you know and it becomes haterade you know, mm-hmm. and it's almost fashionable to hate, unfortunately. And I don't think it was that much in the 90s. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but, you know, just to throw out an easy topic right now, um, you know, DC versus Marvel, right? So right. you've got your people who swear that the MCU is the best thing on Earth. you got your people who swear that Batman versus Superman is a masterpiece. And DC's going to rule it all in a few years. My take on it is you like what you like. You don't like what you don't like. You know, mm-hmm. Marvel hasn't knocked it out of the park every time with their movies, in my opinion, you know, but I'm entertained, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and then Batman versus Superman. It's like, was I entertained by parts of it? Yes. Did I love it? No, <laughs> you know, but I, but there were 15 minute chunks where I was absolutely on the edge of my seat. And then I settled back in and went, okay, well, that was nice. (laughs) So, but nowadays, if you, if I jumped on a Marvel board and said, DC's the best, the vitriol I would get from that would be so extreme. So with, even with Transformers now, I mean, we have this contingent of fans who seem kind of hell-bent to hate everything. Like, mm-hmm. you see certain guys, and you're like, unless it's a third-party toy, you just don't want to like it. So why don't you go to the third-party board and be with the folks who are like-minded as you and stop trying to ruin it for the rest of us, you know? Um, when you see something like, 
Now let's just bring it back to Beast Wars. That Voyager class Rhinox is one of the most beautiful things Hasbro's ever put out. Oh, mm-hmm. hands down. That, oh, beautiful sculpting, amazing. And it, it, I was so happy when they made that because it showed if they wanted to, they could still pull that off. Waspinator and Rattrap also showed that. Yeah. So it's good to know that knowledge, that skill is still there. But you know, there are people who would say, well, you know. Because of this and that, and you know, they did pick the weirdest things. Like, you know, he could use silver on his knees. If it was third party, he'd have silver on his knees. <laughs> and you're just kind of like, what do I say to that? Oh, oh, what? Hello. Yep. Uh, hello. Okay. Hey there. You're probably wondering why this conversation kind of just ended there. Uh, this episode ran a titch long. And uh, so we are splitting it into two, uh, in addition to a few technical difficulties. So uh, tune in next week for the exciting conclusion.